notion from early science fiction. What technology was inspired from this ocean speculation? This episode, I want to take you on a journey through centuries of science fiction about the ocean. From mythic cities to real companies mining resources from the seabed. This is Fact in Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this episode is about the ocean. Before I begin, I want to thank my listeners for their patience this month. I know it's been a long time since my last episode, and definitely longer than I intended, but I'm back. And to keep my promise that I made last episode, I want to thank a few people for reaching out on social media and through email. I want to thank Ready71 on Twitter for giving me a shout out. I got a really nice email from Brian R. And my friend Duke reached out on um, Facebook after binging the last few episodes. Um, I appreciate the feedback, you guys. Again, if you um, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or reach out on social media, I will give you a shout out on my next episode. A while back, I was reading in this podcasting group I'm in on Facebook, a thread about podcasting pet peeves. And a few people said that it really bothers them when hosts say deep dive or diving deep in their episode description, and now it's made me self-conscious, especially beginning an episode about the ocean um, that is ripe for diving puns, but I guess without further ado, let's fall into the ocean. Imagine a young man. He's about 20 years old. Studious, but with a love of adventure. He gets offered a job on a whaling ship as the ship's surgeon. Back then, surgeons could be 20 years old. He's bored of lecture halls, and even though his family and friends think it's a bad idea, he goes anyway. He promises to write a detailed account of his travels, and he boards the whaling ship Hope and sets off to the Arctic. Imagine the air is blistering cold. And luckily, there isn't a lot of surgery needed on this ship. So the young man decides to be a deckhand, even though he is not suited for this. He spends his 21st birthday recovering from the flu in bed. But one day was particularly rocky. There's blinding white ice as far as his eyes can see. To get to a good whaling spot, the ship has to break through the ice. And that's when the storm hits. The rocking ship bursts through an iceberg, and the young man goes flying over the rails. And as he falls, he remembers a warning from the crew. Falling into the water isn't as bad as falling into the water between two chunks of ice. They could cut you in two. Thankfully, a crew member sees the young man and scoops him out with a large whaling hook. Shaken and freezing, he's told to go back below decks 
imagining what would have happened if the crew member hadn't rescued him this time, or the other times he had fallen in on this trip. This young man I'm telling you about would survive his trip on the hope and return home with his journals. Seven years later, he'd debut one of the most beloved characters of all time, Sherlock Holmes. In 1928, Doyle and his wife would take a sea voyage to the island of Aegina. Standing on the deck of a steamer, they were gazing at the ancient temple of Poseidon. Suddenly, they were distracted by something swimming parallel to the ship. Conan Doyle recalled that the curious creature had a long neck and large flippers. I believe, as did my wife, that it was a young plesiosaurus. I tell you this because he couldn't let go of the mysteries of the ocean. The year after his plesiosaurus sighting, Doyle published his novella The Maricot Deep, about an intrepid explorer who leads a team to find the lost city of Atlantis. The ancient civilization has thrived underwater, using advanced technology to breathe and farm. One of these advanced technologies is the thought projector, which could visualize the thoughts of the wearer for others to see. This device allowed the humans and Atlanteans to speak to one another. Advanced underwater technology is a key theme in science fiction. I'm sure Doyle was inspired by Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. See how peaceful it is here. Sea is everything. An immense reservoir of nature when I roam as well. With seeming indifferent, Captain Nemo held the key to the future of the world. The surface there is hunger and fear, hunger and fear. Men still exercise unjust laws. They fight. Tear one another to pieces. Tear one another to pieces. They fight. Fight. A mere few feet beneath the waves, their rain ceases, their even drowns. Drowns. Here, the ocean falls. the only independence. Here, here I am free. Imagine what would happen if they controlled machines such as a submarine boat. Far better. They think there's a monster. Hunt me with harpoons. Jules Verne was fascinated by ocean exploration, too. Of course, the Nautilus, helmed by Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, is an iconic symbol of science fiction. The Nautilus was a giant submersible that could remain underwater indefinitely, using the resources from the ocean itself to power it and feed the crew. Unfortunately, the Nautilus was destroyed in Jules Verne's sequel, The Mysterious Island. But hearing Captain Nemo reminisce about the nature and calm beauty of the deep sea makes me wonder what he would think about the present-day Nautilus. Nautilus is also the name of a vessel operated by the Ocean Exploration Trust, the nonprofit education and research organization founded by Robert Ballard. Robert Ballard found the doomed Titanic on the ocean floor. The technology on the Nautilus today makes highly accurate 3D maps, it discerns if the seafloor is hard or soft, and can even detect oil and gas in the water column. 
On a different note, Nautilus is also the name of a Canadian company. And their project, Solwero One, mines minerals off the coast of Papua New Guinea. Deep sea mining has had severe negative impacts on the ocean. Did you know that companies mine sand for beaches, golf courses, and other recreational purposes? The noise and the waste from ships like Nautilus's have led to a lot of serious criticisms, and it's being slowly divested from its investors. But another market for seabed mining is for minerals and metals used to create batteries for electric cars. Companies are so focused on reducing dependency on fossil fuels that they believe extracting these metals from the ocean is inevitable. Unfortunately, regulation, permits, and monitoring are practically unenforced. Companies are basically marching forward as if their intentions to keep the seabed a renewable resource is consolation enough for critics. You can learn more about this story by going to the links in the show notes as well as the blog. Thanks to World Ocean Radio for reporting this story. Jules Verne submersibles have inspired many companies to invest in underwater vehicles. I mentioned Robert Ballard's Nautilus, but Jules Verne also inspired vehicles you may not know. Facing the Flag by Jules Verne had a submersible very similar to German U-boats called the HMS Sword. Facing the Flag was published 20 years before the general public even knew about U-boats. Verne also inspired a heck of a lot of underwater science fiction that it became an entire subgenre. The 1960s were a really popular time for television set under the sea. From Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Around the World Under the Sea, can't imagine where they got that title, and Stingray were all 60s TV shows that centered on high-tech submarines. At least high-tech for their time. Another main theme in underwater science fiction is the city of Atlantis. I asked people on Twitter what they think of when they hear the word Atlantis, and the winning vote was the 2001 Disney feature, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. The main character is an obsessed cartographer who finds the sunken city alive and well. The Atlanteans survive the tsunami that sunk the city by magical blue crystals. These crystals again save the city from destruction from a volcano. Remember those things. Tsunami and volcano. I'll bring them up later. But where did underwater science fiction come from? The oldest recorded story of advanced underwater technology manned by humans is about Atlantis. I'll argue that the story of Atlantis, while thousands of years old, might be the first recorded science fiction story. The Lost City of Atlantis first appeared in Plato's writings. Plato, you know the uh, philosopher? Plato said his father had heard about this advanced society of Atlantis that had been lost to the seas. The way Plato tells it, the Atlanteans were around in 9000 BC, so over 11,000 years ago. While more recent ideas of Atlantis portray it as a utopia, Plato's Atlantis was more of an antithesis of Plato's ideal society. It was overly dependent on its military might and its wealth. Plato wrote that if the Atlanteans were found still alive and thriving in the sea, they would raise up and enslave us all. But let me backtrack. What is the original story of Atlantis? Atlantis first appeared in Plato's work Critias and his follow-up work Timaeus. Like I said, it was a wealthy society with a large army, much larger than its enemies in Athens. 
The original Atlantis was an island of circles. Imagine like a huge bullseye, alternating between land and large moats or canals. Each of these circles was ruled by a different king. Plato described this island in such minute detail that scholars like Milo from Atlantis the Lost Empire truly believe it existed. Writers like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Jules Verne were definitely familiar with Plato's writings. Plato wrote that Atlantis was so successful in combat over the generations, they became obsessed with their own power, that the gods wanted to punish them. So Zeus hailed the gods down to their pantheon, from which all the world could be seen. And when he had called them together, he spoke as follows. That's it. That's when the story ends. Hell of a mystery, right? The reason I think Plato's stories about Atlantis should count as science fiction is because he wrote that Atlantis had advanced technology, and that part of the story has stuck in the legend since. But what kind of advanced technology? Later science fiction would imagine underwater breathing apparatuses, high-tech submersibles like in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Plato himself wrote that Atlantis was rich in orichalcum, a glistening metal whose preciousness was like gold. Hmm, a hidden advanced society protecting precious metal? Where have I heard that before? In his book, Meet Me in Atlantis, Mark Adams noticed a huge blind spot in Atlantis speculation. If Atlantis were real at the time Plato said it was, the fact that their island was made of alternating canals is a pretty big deal technology-wise. Remember, the Panama Canal was a feat of engineering, and it was created at least 10,000 years after Atlantis. The Panama Canal removed 120 million cubic meters of Earth. For comparison, to complete the Atlantis canals described by Plato, at least 10 billion cubic meters of Earth would have to be dug up. So what, hypothetically, happened to Atlantis? I mentioned earlier to remember what happened to Atlantis in the Disney movie. The oceans used to be bigger. The oceans move. Tsunamis, hurricanes, sometimes they recede like when a volcano creates more landmass, where there was water. Plato doesn't really explain how Atlantis was swallowed up by the waves. It could have been an earthquake that started a large tsunami, and we've seen natural disasters like those in Japan. Volcanoes have also been posed as a possible reason. Some speculators believe that Plato was inspired by a real volcano that submerged an island called Thera, now called Santorini, in Greece. In the 1960s, archaeologists uncovered a city buried for 3,000 years under ash on Santorini. This volcano reportedly caused a tsunami, which lends credence to Plato's ideas of Atlantis. Now, I don't know if Atlantis as Plato described it really existed but it sounds like his ideas were not very far-fetched from real Greek cities that existed, and were lost to natural disasters. The Earth back then was volatile, and will recognize a lot of these natural disasters that occur today. Real or not, the story of Atlantis tells the story of a society far advanced than their enemies, and their downfall may be a lesson Plato wanted to teach. Stories of fallen empires have long been cautionary tales of history, such as Rome, Troy, and El Dorado. Societies who are obsessed with their own power, their hubris leading to their demise. In Atlantis, it's especially ironic that they used canals for trade and protection and eventually were drowned out. I want to leave you with this one last idea. 
The story of Atlantis is a mystery because there's still so much we don't know about the ocean. Remember Robert Ballard, the ocean investigator who found the Titanic and who sails on the Nautilus, mapping the seabed? He's advocating for more ocean exploration. In an article he wrote for the Smithsonian, he says people think of the bottom of the ocean as a bathtub filled with mud, boring, flat, and dark. But it contains the largest mountain range on Earth, canyons larger than the Grand Canyon, and vertical cliffs rising up three miles. And there's still so much more to see. All in all, he says his forays with Nautilus have mapped nearly 40,000 square miles of seafloor a vast area the size of Kentucky, and a larger distance than even Jules Verne could have imagined. But it's a drop in the bucket compared to what's left to do. Leopold Blackman at National Geographic wrote that among the most important of the great undertakings yet to be accomplished by the modern investigator is a complete scientific exploration of the Pacific Ocean. Although some centuries have elapsed since the first adventurers of Western Europe tempted the dangers of this vast region, the Pacific offers today the largest area on the globe for scientific investigation and locks within its mighty shores information that would be of more benefit to modern knowledge than any other similar undertaking. Robert Ballard wrote his Smithsonian article in 2014. Leopold Blackman, however, published his article in the National Geographic in 1908. Fact and Science Fiction is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the place for audiobooks. I recommend Meet Me in Atlantis, my obsessive quest to find the sunken city by Mark Adams. You can download this book or another of your choosing for free with a trial subscription by going to my special link, audibletrial.com slash fact and sci-fi or you can swipe to the show notes and click the link in there that's audibletrial.com slash fact and sci-fi one last ad type thing i am now selling fact and science fiction stickers if you're a fan of the show and want to support it i'm selling my clexicon edition stickers with the original podcast artwork they're three dollars each and i've been known to include a little doodle in the envelope Check out factandsciencefiction.com and click on the store link to find them. Research from this episode came from Mark Adams, World Ocean Radio, Robert Ballard's Why We Must Explore the Sea in Smithsonian Magazine, and audio clips are from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, copyright 1954. Follow the pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fact and Sci-Fi, and read the transcript from this episode on factandsciencefiction.com. And lastly, thanks for listening.